Hi, my name is Mike Jordan-Lasky and I work with the Jesuits in Washington, D.C. On Monday afternoon here on the East Coast, the horrifying photos and videos started filling my Twitter feed. The Notre Dame Cathedral was on fire. As I watched the coverage unfold, I was just overcome with emotion. I even had to choke back tears. This reaction surprised me. I've never been to Notre Dame. I've never even been to France. No lives were lost in the fire, thank God. But I still experienced a genuine feeling of loss. I wanted to process through that experience with someone who knows both architecture and spirituality. So I called up Father Gilbert Sangera, a Jesuit priest who is trained in architecture and now serves as an associate professor of architecture at the University of Detroit Mercy. He has some great insights into the role a cathedral like Notre Dame plays in our culture, even within our society that has grown way more secular in the centuries since the great cathedrals were built. Thanks for joining us. Well, Father Gilbert Sangera, thank you so much for, for coming on for a conversation about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for, for uh, calling. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about uh, what you do. I'm not sure how many Jesuit architects are out there. Um, so sure. tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, uh, technically, I'm not an architect because that's a, a licensed position uh, within the, the profession. Uh, but I am an architectural professor, associate professor at the University of Detroit Mercy uh, in the School of Architecture. Uh, we're one of uh, only uh, two Jesuit universities with an architecture program and uh, ours has been around since the 1960s, fully accredited. So um, I've been here for about 15 years now. Uh, and my focus is on contemporary sacred space uh, as well as all worship spaces. And I run a national consulting service to help congregations and communities uh, kind of think through um, any type of uh, sacred space that they're building. That's neat. So this must have been kind of, again, a convergence of a lot of your, your passions uh, this week and, you know, in a challenging kind of sad way, uh, obviously, with, uh, again, that kind of horrific fire uh, at the Notre Dame Cathedral, though in the past couple of days, it seems to have been revealed that a lot more has been saved and preserved than maybe was originally thought. So can you take us back to where you were when you, you heard about that news? What was your initial reaction like? Sure, sure. Actually, I was in an uh, architectural jury. Our students are in uh, their final presentation week, and so uh, faculty all serve as jury members. So in the middle of it, I got a tweet from my sister, or text message, I should say, uh, just simply saying, uh, Notre Dame is on fire. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and so I, uh, during the break, uh, quickly went down uh, to the architect's office, uh, the uh, our office and people were already in conversation about it, kind of shaken by it and uh, and struggling just to hear the news. And other jury members on uh, that particular field were all checking their emails and looking at uh, social media to see if, uh, what, what it's transpired. And by then, I think the spire had collapsed and just seeing those images were uh, kind of breathtaking. Uh, but it, it surprised me how many people uh, all of a sudden gravitated to the news. I mean, the the architecture school was abuzz with what was going on, but uh, we don't, I mean, we're a Catholic uh, Jesuit university, but, uh, you know, most of the architecture faculty are not practicing uh, Catholics. And so it was just kind of uh, amazing to see how people gravitated to uh, what was happening uh, and the impact it was having on them personally. I mean, this one jury member, 
she was just, she became emotional uh, at the images that she was seeing. Uh, so it really kind of surprised me that way. Yeah. Well, I found myself similarly reacting emotionally and kind of holding back tears, which surprised me myself because I, I've never been to Notre Dame. I've never been to, to Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there was no sound of like early on, no life was in, was in danger. Uh, but there was something about that, that symbol that again, really, really moved me. Why, why do you think there, that there was some of that emotional response in people? Well, uh, you know, uh, Notre Dame has kind of a, a place in people's, um, imagination, um, you know, I've said a Catholic imagination, but clearly this went well beyond the uh, the Catholics. And I think it's that uh, that notion of a sacred space that's uh, accessible to many uh, different people of many different faith traditions or non-faith traditions, uh, that they just recognize it almost like a civic sacred space. So uh, it goes beyond just the denominational boundaries. Uh, and I think it represents uh, to people, uh, you know, the sense of beauty, this power that's greater than themselves, this ability to produce beautiful uh, works of art, beautiful architecture, to uh, beautiful craftsmanship. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of that kind of combined, there was that sense that that was lost all of a sudden, that that uh, had been taken away. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it was kind of clear early on that this was probably not a terrorist act, but this just was some type of an accident probably that occurred, but a terrible uh, tragedy that way. You know, uh, just that sense of loss that you can't uh, ascribe to an enemy or something else other than, you know, just bad things sometimes happen. And I think it just hurts people kind of in the way, you know, when so many famous dies uh, that maybe has impacted people. Uh, But, you know, it was amazing because there were a number of people who, you know, even at the School of Architecture who had never been there and were uh, just taken back by it. And and just seeing that reaction, I was even more surprised, I guess. Um, But it is one of those iconic uh, structures. Uh, You know, it is a landmark. Uh, It has all those designations. But I think it reaches to something that's more at the core, whereas um, other structures may not hold that same level of impact. Sure. And I think you you see in that, again, just so many centuries of people inspired by their faith and the sense of beauty and responding to a call, working on a project much bigger than themselves, right? Just thinking about people starting on, you know, laying the cornerstone, you know, more than 800 years ago, knowing that they would never see it, it's completion. Yep. Yeah. Well, and the fact that you see the hand of artisans where today, um, you know, a lot of building components are manufactured and there isn't that same um, the same sense of the human touch involved, even though there's, you know, millions of people that are literally constructing these buildings or creating these products that go in buildings. But they're just that they're products. They're not stone that had to be hand cut to fit that particular situation in the building location or uh, artistic elements that were added, all of those kinds of things. I remember working on a, a, a church. This was out in Oakland, California, where the Jesuits were had taken over pastoral responsibility that the theology school had. And uh, we, we were just replacing some glass in uh, a door. And this glass artist brought this glass and, and it was hand blown. 
uh, she was a stained glass artist and, and it was just a simple piece of glass. It wasn't any, there wasn't anything artistic, but, but she just pointed out that you could see the bubbles of the breath of the artist who blew the glass. And the congregation was just taken away with that idea, you know, and I think sometimes we forget about that. You know, I look through windows all the time and almost all of that glass is just manufactured. You know, it's, it's a machine that produced, you know, a nice clean sheet of glass. But here was this one that captured the breath of the artist, you know, and all of a sudden it, that meant something to that congregation. They just never had a chance to see something. And again, it was just a simple piece of glass. It wasn't anything remarkable other than it held the breath of the artist and and that by itself uh, had imports sure and you would see people you know parishioners telling other people that you know they were like oh this isn't just any glass this is actually blown by an artist and and it meant something much more substantial so uh, those kinds of elements in a building i think really um, speak of something much grander Sure. And that there's even a sense of traveling through time, right? And that way is connecting yeah. to that moment. And we see that throughout you know, Notre Dame. And so someone that yourself who has studied sacred spaces and, and architecture, are there any specific elements uh, of the Notre Dame Cathedral that, that really strike you or take your breath away? Well, you know, to be honest with you, it's not a great example. Uh, it's not, I would say, it's not the greatest example of Gothic architecture. And I know a number of people keep saying it, but, uh, you know, a, a Chartres Cathedral uh, outside of Paris is probably the quintessential Gothic cathedral because uh, the whole notion of the Gothic cathedral was to bring uh, this incredible quality of light into the space. And if you've ever been in Notre Dame, it's fairly dark, you know, because of um, the, the situation of the building within its context, its urban context, I guess, but also the walls are heavier than normal, which probably helped in this case with the fire. Um, but it, it was never really considered, you know, the grand example of Gothic architecture, but it's the one that's probably the most well-known and probably the best that when, when people think of Gothic, they would think of Notre Dame. But in reality, it was never really considered the quintessential ones. But, you know, the glass work in there, the, um, you know, it's been probably about 25 years since I've been in there. Uh, yeah, so I would say, um, again, the windows are probably the ones, uh, the piece that people really reflect upon, this beautiful rose windows. In this case, there's actually three of the rose windows. And my understanding is at least one of them uh, has been saved, uh, if not more. But uh, these are grand expressions, originally really of the community, that whole notion of Christ in the center of the community is what uh, is symbolically depicted in these kind of rose windows. But, um, you know, they have that just because of its round nature, I think has an iconic uh, significance that other stained glass windows typically, which are more story related, uh, don't necessarily communicate. But this one has that kind of an abstraction of where Christ is in the midst of a community. But those, uh, those glass windows are significant. Um, the statuary was significant. Um, and I think it's also the historic nature of it. I mean, uh, kings were uh, kings and queens were uh, anointed there. Uh, Joan of Arc uh, was there. The rebellions all kind of took place in front. I mean, even uh, U.S. Army soldiers were present there at um, uh, you know at the end of the war. So there was always this kind of grand social, public, civic quality to the space. Um, 
that we don't have necessarily in the United States. We don't anoint kings, you know, and there really isn't a, a single church that represents the United States. Um, the National Cathedral might come the closest, but it isn't always the site of uh, presidential funerals, for example. Um, and we don't do a swearing in in churches. There's no one that takes an oath uh, of office in the church. Uh, maybe the capital steps for that. Uh, and I would say the state capital, uh, the U.S. capital, uh, has that iconic power that even the White House, frankly, doesn't. Um, you know, so it's interesting. I don't think we we ascribe that sense of um, the sacred to political parties in the same way. So I don't think we have uh, any religious structures that hold that uh, that same quality of imagination. Sure. Going back to that scene uh, on kind of Monday evening in Paris, you had, again, thousands of people pouring into the streets, some praying right. or singing, and just others just yeah. kind of being there and witnessing and thinking about like kind of how almost like democratic this was, you know, this, this space that was open to everyone and was this, this real symbol within the, the culture, even again in France now, which has become quite a secular place. And so I just had to be thinking about what roles do churches play in our communities? Again, obviously places where, you know, the, the faithful gather uh, for liturgy, mm -hmm. uh, but also they, they have other roles as well. And so maybe even in your, in your work kind of helping congregations and working on, on modern churches, how do you think about the different roles that a church might play? Uh, well, again, a part of it is symbolic and part of it is, is the practical nature of a church. So um, a church should make uh, anyone feel comfortable in it. So uh, whether it is royalty or political figures or the homeless, they should all feel comfortable to be able to walk in and kind of claim it as their own. And I think that's a significant a distinction uh, where uh, people are not meant to be intimidated by it, uh, but awestruck by it in the same way. And the fact that, again, a prince or a pauper can walk into a church and, you know, the Eucharist that they both receive is frankly the same. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not as if one gets a special host, you know, Jesus is Jesus. So, you know, they get the same. Uh, and so there's a bit of an egalitarian sense to, to the space. Um, also, it's, you know, where people pray. And again, um, you know, they might be a saint or they might be a sinner, uh, but it doesn't matter because the ground has been made holy by that prayer. Uh, as well as the encounter of Christ in the Eucharist and uh, the various sacraments uh, where the holy is, is kind of made real. Uh, but, but that exposure then makes the ground sacred, makes it holy. And so, uh, you know, if it ever stopped being a church, it has to be, um, it has to be, uh, gosh, I forgot the phrase, but basically uh, uh, it has to be, um, Gosh, <laughs> I can't even think of the name now. Um, it has to be decommissioned, basically, uh, as a sacred space, uh, in the same way that it is, uh, you know, uh, um, anointed. You know, I mean, the, one of the beautiful actions of a church at dedication is the anointing of the altar. Um, you know, where the oil is poured onto the altar and then rubbed in by the bishop, and there's a sense that all of a sudden. Uh, this space is kind of being made holy by that first Eucharistic action and then remains that way 
uh, unless something desecrates it. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's really uh, that presence of Christ uh, that enters into that space and then makes this uh, uniquely uh, sacred space. Um, yeah, I know that. So cathedrals, uh, kind of like Notre Dame, within the worshiping community, again, obviously gathering for for the public worship, but then also telling stories. Like the the buildings themselves are stories, and I've seen the phrase uh, translated to English as kind of poor people's books. You know, these cathedrals built at a time when not many people had access to education. Maybe folks couldn't read, uh, didn't couldn't read the Bible themselves, and so the mm-hmm. stories of the saints in the community kind of told visually uh, as such an important piece of the function of a cathedral like Notre Dame. Right, right. Um, you know, but to be honest with you, that's uh, uh, various developments over time. Um, you know, the, the ability to communicate stories um, through the arts is always a significant uh, part of cathedrals, but the, the early stained glass was really uh, considered grisset, which were just uh, patterns of lights. And to me, actually, that's the more exciting part. I mean, the light that comes in through these stained glass windows um, are about different frequencies of light that literally are filtered through glass that has uh, literally these minerals impregnated into them that then filter a certain quality. So uh, it's not so much the, I mean, there is about the storytelling and there's some beautiful images and all of that. I mean, we're always struck by that. But the part that really makes uh, stained glass really significant is uh, that different frequencies uh, animate the glass at different times. And um, the way that the color enters into the space because of that uh, becomes the more significant, but it's very subtle, you know. Uh, the stories are the ones that I think capture people's imaginations because they they read that very easily. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's a slight side, but uh, there was a church in Switzerland that had been um, destroyed by an avalanche, and a famous architect was brought in to rebuild it. Um, and he was familiar with this town. And he kind of just said, you know, most people don't even go to church anymore in this town. You know, so why why do you really want this church rebuilt? And they said that they needed a power. They needed to recognize there was a power greater than themselves there. So even though no one in the town really went to church anymore, they needed the chapel to be a symbol of this power, uh, which I thought was quite beautiful. So this architect created this 12 seat little chapel a stunning piece of design. Mario Boda is his name, and and just this incredibly powerful piece of architecture, uh, just for that, because he realized that. Uh, and this architect was practicing Catholic, and you know, it was important for him to see a church rebuilt. But the fact that even if it wasn't functioning in the traditional sense, people needed that symbol, especially in a in a world that goes chaotic and. You know, in this case, this town that that suffered an avalanche that destroyed half the town needed to know that there was this power that was greater than themselves. And, you know, I think about France right now where people aren't as Catholic as they used to be. There's that real struggle that they're trying to figure out um, who are they in the midst of all this, you know. Uh, And to me, to be honest with you, that was the most beautiful piece. You know, the church has gone through, um, I would say, a lot of self-inflicted wounds over the sexual abuse scandal, right? 
And, you know, there's just that sense as a practicing Catholic, like how, how bad can this keep getting, you know? And all of a sudden to see people respond lovingly to uh, this great symbol of the church, I've, I just found it very comforting uh, as, as a priest, but more so as a practicing Catholic, that other people actually do care uh, about what the church stands for ultimately, uh, whether it's beauty, whether it's, um, you know, this connectedness to the transcendent, uh, but people are still seeking that um, in some kind of palpable way. It's not just a philosophical approach that they just need sometimes these places uh, where they recognize they can that power that's greater than themselves. Sure. And I think that I've seen reactions to that, uh, that truth that you've seen again, this this hunger for the, the sacred or this, again, uh, the sorrow that people have felt, even those who are not kind of actively participating in the faith community. I, I, one reaction I think is yours and one that, that I share is, wow, that shows that there's this hunger for something more that's there, even if it's not articulated clearly. And then others I've seen that are not as charitable and say, like, if you don't love the church that this stands for, uh, that, that created this, then how can you love the building that there's just that's a sign of our, the downfalls of our secular age, which I think is kind of lacks some like some charity and i think for us you know as mm -hmm. as a church and we think about how do we reach out to people maybe who have fallen away or don't see how the church is relevant in their lives. I think maybe beauty is such a great doorway in to see, again, what are the different beautiful things that, you know, we have created all in, again, response to, to, to faith that we, you know, believe that we've been given this gift of creativity and, and are like God in that way. Like we have an ability to kind of create along with God and so have responded to that and through so, num so many num different ways throughout, again, our, our history. And just, I think that real kind of meditation on beauty we saw uh, saw this week. And and I, th I think then too, I, there's a the question is, what are we doing now uh, to kind of, are we creating any kind of similarly beautiful things? Are we still responding in that way? There were some people wondering, I saw wondering on Twitter, um, has the church, have we produced any structures in like recent decades that would elicit such an emotional reaction if they burned down in a hundred years? I, I don't know. So as someone, as you're working kind of yeah. on modern and contemporary church architecture and, and creation, um, what are some of the things you're noticing? Is there there's still that hunger for, for beauty there and, and trying to pursue those things of meaning? Well, uh, yeah, there's definitely a hunger for beauty. Uh, I don't think there's a consistent sense of what beauty is. And uh, especially in church architecture, uh, the notion of art that's accessible to the general public uh, is very different. I mean, we've um, we've created uh, incredible museums filled with art that, for the average person, they don't necessarily find it accessible. They don't understand it, or they don't uh, they don't know how to appreciate it. Uh, they might go to the museums, but they aren't necessarily as overwhelmed, I think, by it. Um, so I think we've lost a, a bit of an understanding of what beauty is. And, uh, and it's a struggle, when it, especially when it comes into, I would say, sacred spaces right now. Um, part part uh, people would just say, well, we've lost the craftsmen who could develop the human form in sculpture, for example. Well, I, I agree with that to some extent, but I also realize that um, you know uh, people are interested in both the abstract and uh, the figural, and we haven't found good um, connectedness between the two. Um, 
the LA Cathedral is probably one of the most contemporary of the recent structures, I would say, sacred spaces at a large scale. There's been some beautiful smaller churches, uh, you know, like the Seattle University Chapel, though that was built in the 1980s. Um, but, you know, as for it's like grand civic uh, religious spaces, um, but, you know, a lot of people question whether the art in it uh, is of the highest caliber. Now, um, the art community, I remember that where there was a I think a debate that occurred with the Cardinal um, at the, the Contemporary Art Museum down the street from the cathedral uh, when they disclosed the type of artwork that was going to go in. And uh, the art community was really almost livid because it wasn't utilizing uh, like the David Hockneys and the other great artisans of Los Angeles at the time. Uh, but the Cardinal, I think, wisely realized, because that's not that accessible to the average person who comes in here. Uh, so they've got these uh, tapestries that are quite beautiful, you know, and I would say uh, more people are drawn to the tapestries than they are at the building. And I would say the building is remarkable from an architectural standpoint, uh, the, especially the interior spaces that have been created uh, by Rafael Maneo. Uh, but uh, not everybody... Um, uh, embraces it the same. Um, and I don't think you necessarily have to have it, but you do have to figure out a good balance. And so I find a real struggle uh, today trying to find what is that kind of art that uh, excites people um, and is of quality uh, that both the church community can afford and uh, that speaks to this notion of beauty in the transcendent. And it's really a difficult task. Um, so we don't have that same common language. And if I understand correctly, I think Notre Dame went through a, a renovation, let's say, um, and I forgot which king uh, inspired it, but he, he kind of stripped down some of the, the original uh, ornamentation of the, of the cathedral. Uh, and I'm sure it's um, the general public in, um, in consternation that things were removed and stripped down. Even the Gothic architecture itself tends to be a stripped down sense. I mean, ornamentation was really limited when you think of the Baroque or the Renaissance, uh, some of the Renaissance pieces that came later. Um, but the, even the Romanesque uh, use of art in, as ornamentation in these buildings were stripped away in the early Gothic churches. And people were aghast by it. Now they've come full circle and, and admire it for its simplicity that way. Um, so it's kind of a complicated question about beauty, art that's accessible, art that transcends um, in today's world. I know that's been one of the big stories about Notre Dame, kind of learning a little bit about the history through the the ages, you know, has kind of, there have been, as styles have changed or again, have even fallen into disrepair. And then some writing of Victor Hugo is even largely credited with saving it. Um, and again, mm -hmm. through all these different iterations, um, but kind of this, the solidness of it kind of staying constant and then these things kind of happening around it, which I think as we see now, I saw President Macron has hopes for it to be rebuilt in five years. And there's an international right. architectural uh, competition announced to redesign the spire it. with the spire, which of course was added later than much later than the original construction. But that there's that sense of this, these, you know, kind of great buildings kind of never being completed and kind of both being 
unchanged, but also changing, like kind of almost like the church itself, right? Is that there are some things that you won't touch, yeah. but other things that are uh, affected by the, uh, you know, the preferences of the time. So it'd be interesting to see kind of the next stage in that, that history for the church. I wanted to, to fit. Right. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and I would say it's also going to be one of the explosive parts of this, right? People will want to see the church built, rebuilt exactly as a replica of what it was in the past. And and I think legitimately that question is, is like, it can't be, you know, it, it, with the sincerity of those pieces that were developed, you know, uh, 800 years ago, you know, and hand carved and stuff like that. So it, it, that's going to be, I think, uh, one of these, when he announced that, you know, there's a competition for potentially new type of spire. Uh, I, I was excited by it, but I can imagine there were a lot of people that just took a deep breath of that blood and the battles that are going to be waged on uh, social media over this is going to be pretty, uh, pretty drastic, I would imagine. Yeah, that's definitely the, be- the beginning of this, this story. And, and again, though, I think there is, I think, some relief that it did look like all three of the rose windows were saved. And the even some of those images, just kind of haunting images inside the church where there's rubble, but then, you know, a cross kind of illuminated uh, the altar still visible, which I thought for me were just mm-hmm. these, these powerful symbolic images, especially during this Holy Week, you know, that's not lost on, on us uh, and the, the faith community that yeah. this happened right at the start of the of this holiest week of the year and um, seem to be some themes that resonate or connect between uh, a church fire like this and and the the stories of Holy Week. So did you see any any connections there? Will this uh, inform your own prayer uh, during this Holy Week? <laughs> I have to admit, it, it always makes me panic. I was just sharing with uh, some of the judges at the table uh, the other day. I, I did a lot of, um, I served as a director for liturgy at one of our parishes in California. And then um, the work that I do now is directly related to, uh, you know, liturgical planning issues as well. And I keep thinking to myself, oh, this, the fire that you have to do uh, on Holy Saturday, right, at the Easter Vigil is a holy fire and just that idea that you know as these embers are rising you know will somebody get trapped into a building and then you know will it set the place on fire but i always panic every time on on the easter vigil as that fire is lit you know or as candles are moving into a church and all of those kinds of things i mean it's already a heightened sense of tension for me uh, as a priest and as somebody involved with liturgy, but uh, I'm just thinking of the the impact that has, you know, uh, and it is this sense, you know, arising from the ashes and all of that. But my first gut instinct is like, <laughs> how do you contain this so nothing happens? And I mean, I, every liturgist is going to have their stories, you know, these horror moments where you know the fire gets just a little bit out of control, and you know, luckily nothing happens for the most part. You know, sometimes it does, but you know, there's always this worry, I think, um, about that. And that's part of the liturgy. I mean, it's, it's the danger part, I guess, that, that makes it a bit um, a reminder of, again, the power of nature, uh, both in creation and in destruction. You know, and those readings are so beautiful that way, right? That the Easter vigil, you know, about um, starting with creation and then uh, the, the, Red Sea that uh, opens up to save the people and then crashes down on Pharaoh's chariots and charioteers and that sense of destruction and uh, death, you know, um, 
So you, you do get that, <laughs> you know, and I would imagine for the average person in the pew, uh, especially at the user vigil, that's going to be a, a, a really difficult one. Um, but you're right, that symbol of the cross, and you see that a lot in social media and, and on the news and stuff, you know, and then firefighters literally just pouring, you know, gallons of water onto it to keep that from burning, you know, it was just phenomenal, <laughs> you know, it was like, we got to save it. Right, or the, the chaplain from the fire department who raced in to save uh, different relics. Uh, so he was covered yeah. in the, the news as well. And there is, I guess, yeah, that sense of risk, right? There's some risk in this. There's risk in creating these yeah. structures. There's risk in in, in worship and, and faith in that where it's not a comfortable, uh, the triduum is not a comfortable thing, right? It invites us into those, no. those big questions and themes of, <laughs> of uh, life and death and, and hope in the midst of uh, despair. Uh, but no, I, I do. I, I feel today you know, a little more hopeful. Again, I think some of the news that a lot of the church has, has been preserved. But even thinking again in our own uh, moments of like, it feels like the institutional church is on fire as well, right? You mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um, and yeah. to see though the, the, the faith and the, the hope kind of come out in response to this really kind of sad thing in, in France, I, I just hope that uh, we might see that within our community kind of going forward as we have to kind of dig out, continue to dig out from this, uh, this fire of our own, our own doing. Yeah. And, and, to, you know, it's kind of interesting. People have jumped in and kind of said, well, uh, you know, uh, much of uh, Notre Dame was saved, but the reality is that was, that was a horrendous fire. And, and, you know, the structure of it uh, for the most part, and I, and I am surprised because of, all the flying buttresses and stuff that require the weight of that roof to keep it stable without it there, you know, it's a precarious uh, building right now, precarious structure until they can stabilize it. Um, and the, you know, the damage of the interior works is pretty substantial. I think, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad people find comfort in it, but I also realize that, you know, it's, it's a pretty severe damage no matter what, you know, um, but I think people find hope, you know, again, seeing that cross and seeing it glow, you know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, gold leaf, I suspect, or it was a, some type of metal, but that it wasn't even really tarnished, you know, <laughs> that it was, or charred, you know, it just in the midst of the rubble, it just, you know, it's kind of like uh, at the World Trade Center, right, the cross beams, you know, which was never meant to be a cross, all of a sudden became the cross, right, you know, it was that uh, people all of a sudden uh, saw it in a new light in the midst of the rubble, you know, just standing there. Um, those two eye beams, in other words, <laughs> you know, that form the cross. Those kinds of things all of a sudden just become these uh, these moments of, uh, I think, again, solace in the midst of this kind of struggle. And, I mean, that's what our faith teaches us, you know. And I and I have to admit, I was moved by people's compassion for this. You know, we were talking last night at an event. Uh, at the architecture school and and people just sharing like I've never been there but I just feel such a loss at this and I and just you know uh, really you know they were coming up to me almost like in, as if I had lost a loved one <laughs> you know and I'm like you know it, it is painful I mean any architect will tell you seeing a building that's in, in uh, in ruin is real painful <laughs> to experience you know it is like a loved one uh, you know that's uh, has been lost but but it was a really kind of beautiful, that, that compassion of people uh, to reach out. 
Sure. Well, Father Gilbert, thank you so much for, for joining us during this very busy Holy Week for you. And uh, just wish you blessings on uh, your triduum and, and hopefully uh, the the candles and Easter fire stay under under control for you this year. <laughs> well, you know, one of the struggles for me, normally I do contemporary pieces or, you know, uh, most of my churches with that. But right now I'm working on a hundred year old basilica in Minneapolis and that's where I'm actually headed to today is to be there for the whole Triduum and to help this, the recently selected architects with understanding the liturgy that's taking place. So I've been up in the attic of that. And again, it's a hundred year old, beautiful Beaux-Arts, uh, really rich space that's going to be going through probably about a 40 or $50 million restoration and some additional work to it. Um, and I, and I always think of this thing now, I'm like, oh, my God, if this thing would ever burn, it would never get the the outpouring of, of love, other than Minneapolis folks would. You know, they, they're actually very supportive of the Basilica. But, Though but, I did uh, see that there was uh, this um, a, almost a, a viral fundraiser in support of a few black churches that have been have burned recently uh, in, in the South. Yeah, it seems yeah. to me it be a response uh, and to a mosque as well that you know, had caught fire recently. And, and, and maybe, again, this will raise some uh, attention to you know, to other uh, places of worship that are, uh, have also, you know, kind of fallen prey uh, to this. But uh, anyway, again, thank you uh, so much and uh, safe travels sure. uh, to, to, to Minnesota. And uh